the times our world is living in. We can feel like we're in a wilderness. We can feel like we're in a barren land. We can feel awfully lonely. Father, we ask that you would, as Redeemer in Christ, that you would redeem our land, that you would have our leaders of this country, that you would have just your word of who Jesus is spread throughout this country to a point that people are turning to you rather than putting their trust in any sort of political leader or any specific movement that's going on, that they would trust in Christ. Help us, Father, to be examples of Christ to the world so that the world may look at us and see what it looks like to be redeemed. That there's a better life for those who trust in Jesus. As we approach your word this morning, Father, I ask that you would just help us to have hearts and ears that are ready to listen. Have your spirit work in us and convict us and comfort us by your word. May we walk away this morning being more faithful witnesses like we see those in Acts being. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you're getting on a plane. And you've been given knowledge that you don't personally know the pilot, but the pilot, has, it's been told you that the pilot has been very successful in his years of flying through storms. That there's going to be a number of storms that he's been through that he knows how to fly through, and he's always been successful. But then you sit down next to somebody on the plane who's quite cynical about the situation and tells you that they think the plane is going to crash. Storm or not, they believe the plane's not going to make it. How likely are you to defend the pilot? How strongly will you defend the pilot? Knowing he's done his job time and time again. I trust the training he's had. I've heard he's successful. I'm going to push back on this person claiming it's not going to work out. Now imagine that same scenario, but you personally know the pilot. They're a trusted friend that you know they've been successful. You've heard their stories of being successful. You've heard the training they've gone through, and you've personally flown with them before. How much more likely are you to push back on the person with the cynical attitude saying, I don't trust that guy? Now imagine the scenario again. The pilot's your dad or your mother. And they've flown all their lives. They have all this experience. How much stronger even then will it be to say, no. I know that this person is going to get me from point A to point B because I'm in the hands of my mother or my father. 
Even if we have to change route because a storm hits, I know we're going to get to where we're supposed to go. As we come to our final portion of Acts, we see God taking Paul on an unusual route. Maybe not one that we would all expect Paul to take. Maybe not one Paul would have preferred to take. But Paul trusts Christ enough to say, I'm going to remain committed to the task before me because I know God's going to get me from point A to point B. So let me quickly summarize what happens in these chapters. We don't have time to read all of them. So let me summarize kind of what happens in these, and then we'll get to some specific truths that we see from Paul's life and from the book of Acts as we close our series this morning. Paul, last week we finished off with Paul on his way to Jerusalem, telling people that he was expecting persecution. The Spirit had actually told him he was going to be persecuted when he got to Jerusalem, but he was going to go anyway. Paul shows up at Jerusalem, and what happens? He gets arrested. He stands before a crowd of people. He shares his testimony of how he was saved, and then he also includes the gospel in there so that people can respond to it. People respond with what? A plot to kill him. Paul gets saved by his nephew. He goes before a council where an argument breaks out. And so that argument among the council, along with the plot by the people to kill Paul, leads Paul to have a trial before a governor named Felix. Felix is interested in Paul's faith as Paul shares his testimony in the gospel. He actually ends up bringing his wife to listen to Paul's faith, but he dies within a couple years before he can really do much with Paul's arrest. So that leaves someone else to take over, a guy named Festus. Paul doesn't feel so comfortable with Festus like he did with Felix, and so he's not sure he's actually going to be allowed to be saved from the situation. He thinks he could possibly die before Festus, so Paul says, as a Roman citizen, I appeal to Caesar. You can appeal your case to a higher authority, which means now Paul is going to get sent to Rome. Right? So he appeals to Caesar. Before he goes, he has a chance to give his testimony before a king named Agrippa. And so we see Paul give this te- his testimony to him, and then he gets put on a ship and sent off to Rome. He goes city after city as he sails. They stop for the winter. He ends up shipwrecked on an island called Malta, and he finally makes it to Rome. He shares the gospel. Some people oppose him, but he also sees some people result, result in having faith. And the whole book of Acts ends on this hopeful note that it says Paul was preaching the gospel, the kingdom of God to all who came to him, even in the midst of him being on house arrest. Now we know from history that Paul was killed in Rome. But Luke doesn't mention that. Luke mentions only at the end of the book that Paul was preaching to all who came and he did so with boldness and without hindrance. Luke is making a point here. The gospel continues to go. It continues to push on. It continues to go forth. Exactly what Jesus said was going to happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth is going on. The gospel has now made it to Rome. So there's some truths to pull from Paul's story in these chapters, but also from the whole portion of Acts altogether. So Let's just get into it. Our first truth is God's road will always be 
exceedingly superior. Notice I didn't say God's road will always be the more traveled road. It won't always be the well-paved road. And it won't always be, in our terms, the most efficient road. But no matter what the road looks like, we know it will be vastly better than the road we would choose for ourselves. Just look at Paul's situation. He sets his mind to go to Jerusalem knowing that persecution awaits him there. But he believes that this road God has him on is exceedingly superior to what his own preferences would be. Back in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, Paul says, I set my mind to go to Jerusalem, but I know I need to make it to Rome. Paul actually writes a letter to the church in Rome. Romans, he hasn't seen them ever. He's never met this church in Rome. But he tells them how how much he longs to be with them and to visit them. So even if it wasn't the path Paul would have chosen for himself, it's the path that's going to lead him ultimately not just to where he wants to go, but where God wants him to go. Look at Acts chapter 23, verse 11. Paul just got done appearing before the council before he gets sent to the governor Felix, and it says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. God tells Paul, take courage because I'm going to get you not only to where I want you to be, but this is what you wrote to them and said you hope to do. So, but then we ask the question, this probably isn't the way Paul would have wanted it to happen. Imagine yourself in Paul's situation. Would you, you want to go see these people in Rome, this church in Rome, would you have said the way for me, the best way for me to get there is to get arrested in Jerusalem? To go through these various trials with different governors in order to appeal to Caesar so that I have to end up in Rome on house arrest in order to be with those Christians? I don't think Paul necessarily would have preferred that path. I don't think we necessarily would choose that path for ourselves. That's why I say God's road is always exceedingly superior. Or if you just look at the church and the whole book of Acts... Who would have thought, when Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that the path to get there was going to look the way it did? Right? We know that Jesus promised they were going to make it to the ends of the earth. And then let's just read that portion there at the end of Acts. Acts 28, verse 30, it says, Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that's the end of the book. That's the end of the story Luke tells. Exactly what Jesus told them would happen as his witnesses happened. I mean, we start with 120 people And within just a couple chapters, we have thousands. So imagine now, after Paul's trips to all these different cities and all the other apostles to all their cities, how far this gospel has gone and how many have believed it to this point. I mean, just Paul alone from Jerusalem to Rome is 1,400 miles. No planes. No vehicles. 
I was looking up how far it was. It's a 43-hour drive in a vehicle. So imagine, you're Paul, you have to deal with ships and the weather and storms and stopping at these cities and stopping at these cities and gathering supplies here and they're shipwrecked. And, and that's just one of Paul's journeys. Look at how much the gospel has spread from the beginning. We know that a, a eunuch from Ethiopia got saved, takes the gospel to Africa. We have a number of disciples, apostles, that are never even mentioned of where they go. We have churches all throughout Asia now that have been established by Paul, and who knows where people are traveling to those main cities and hearing about the gospel and taking it back home. But it's not a road that necessarily they would have chosen for themselves. You look throughout Acts and you see people being arrested, people being flogged, beaten, people being stoned, people being dispersed from their homes, and even people dying for the sake of Jesus. But the truth is, God's road accomplishes exactly what Jesus said he would do. There was this moment where we were visiting grandparents, and one of the things my parents have at their house is this this jar sitting on the floor with like Christmas lights in it. It's kind of a decorative thing, and Obviously, that intrigues Albert. So there's this moment when we were at their house, and Albert starts to crawl over to it. And I tell him, Albert, no. And he kind of looks at me, and he smiles. And then he looks back at it, and he takes another step. I say, Albert, no. And he looks at me, and he starts to crawl away from it. And I'm like... Yes. I'm like, so I tell him, I'm like, good job, buddy. Thank you for listening. And then he just does a U-turn. And just goes back to it. But then there's this sweet moment where I, he, he continues back, and I say, one last time, I say, Albert, don't do it. And he looks at me, and he looks at the lights. He looks at me, and he looks at the lights. And he just starts crying. And while that breaks your heart in the moment, my heart also felt this comfort of knowing that Albert has this internal struggle already. He was under one year old at this point, and he knows, I want this. But this guy who takes care of me, who holds me when I'm crying, is telling me no. Am I going to trust him, or am I going to go my own way? And brothers and sisters, we face that decision every single day. Not just when you wake up in the morning, but you have little moments every second of your day in life of, are you going to trust God's road, or are you going to trust your own? Our lives are filled with these moments of making decisions. Just think about some of the decisions you might make during the day. If you have a child that disobeys you and you respond with anger or, and yelling at them or maybe you're more passive and you respond with you're going to give them the silent treatment because you're angry at them, you decide in that moment that your desires for what should happen in that moment were wronged. That your way was not being met. 
And instead of seeing this as an opportunity to say, my child's pursuing after something their heart, they have an internal struggle going on. Instead of saying, let's deal with their internal struggle, you're saying, my way wasn't met, I'm angry, that's what matters. Rather than saying, God's given me insight here that my child's pursuing something they shouldn't be, how can I help them understand their heart better? Or if you see gossip taking place and you decide to participate in it, you make a decision in that moment that you knowing something and finding out information or you telling information about that situation is more important to you than to stay silent on it as God would have you do. Or every moment we choose to pick up our phones and scroll through Facebook or the news, or play games, or whatever it is you do on your phone. In that moment, you chose a brief moment of relief, of entertainment by the world, rather than finding peace and joy in relationship with the Father. Your day is made up of these moments where you can choose God's road or your own road. The promise we see in Acts is much larger, has much larger at stake than Facebook. But the promise is God's road is exceedingly superior. But we also see that only those who have been radically changed by the gospel are the ones that will live for it. Right? You can't choose God's road if you don't first know God. So only those who were once enemies to God, who have now been reconciled to God, are the ones that are going to have their lives devoted to sharing the good news of who Jesus is. Just look at Paul, again, for an example. We see his own life laid on the line for the sake of sharing the gospel of Jesus. And this isn't just a willingness to die for the gospel like we saw last week. It is that. We see that he lives that out. He does die for the gospel. But this is a commitment of Paul's entire life to the gospel. Paul travels from city to city, three different missionary journeys that we know about, just to make sure as many people as possible hear about Jesus. And now he gets arrested And Paul says, I'm going to use my trials, my moment to make a defense in my trials, to share my conversion story and to share the gospel. When he's in front of the crowd of people, he shares that sins can be washed away by calling upon the name of Jesus. When he's in front of the Roman council, he speaks of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he's before Felix, he speaks of hope, resurrection, and righteousness. So much to the point that Felix brings his own wife to hear about this faith. And I have one passage here I want us to read. This is is how Paul lays it out for King Agrippa before he gets sent to Rome. Look at Acts 26, starting in verse 15. Paul's in the middle of his conversion story, right? He talks about how he used to kill Christians, and now he's on his road to Damascus to kill more Christians, to bring more in prison. 
and Jesus shows up, right? This bright light, Jesus shows up, and this is where Paul is at. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul has this moment before a king of Rome And what's he speak about? Turn from darkness to light. Turn from Satan to God. Forgiveness, faith, repentance, what life looks like following repentance. Christ's death and resurrection. Paul then goes on to, he makes it to Rome, and we see that he proclaims the kingdom of God. It says he tries to convince the people there of Jesus. He shares with them the message of salvation. All of this is evident. Paul's life was committed to the gospel. Paul's life had been so radically changed by the gospel that it meant his entire life surrounded getting word out to everyone else. And really, this is the whole story of Acts, isn't it? People who are saved by Christ sharing Christ. This was a complete transformation of these people's lives to the point that they were now publicly sharing Jesus. They were meeting with people in their homes and they were willing to be persecuted for the sake of preaching Jesus. So may this be a reminder. If you have been saved by Jesus, it changes what you have committed yourself to. It doesn't mean that you don't take care of your family. It doesn't mean you don't go to a job. It doesn't mean you enjoy the the blessings that God has given us in creation. But what it does mean is your whole system of your values has changed. What you used to be passionate about, though you may still enjoy it, that passion now fades in comparison with how much more valuable and passionate you are about Jesus. So when God gives you a clear opportunity to share Christ and you decide to ignore that opportunity, you're displaying what you're committed to, which in that moment is your own reputation or your own self-esteem because you don't want to feel rejected. I'm not saying I've always been great at this or I even am now great at this, but 
There was a moment where I was working for a vending machine company. I was working part-time as a youth pastor, and I was working about 30, 35 hours a week at this vending machine company. And I was all by myself all day, six, seven hours a day, five days a week, just filling machines, taking money. And I was getting fed up with it. I mean, I just, I, I'm, a, I'm a social person. I was a youth pastor part-time, and I just, I wanted more. I wanted to be doing something for the sake of Jesus with my life. And so one morning on my way, I prayed, and I said, God, just give me a chance to talk to somebody. Like, I was working alone most of the time, but I was in the break room, so there's people coming and going. It just was never more than, hey, how you doing? And it, I went to the very first factory, and this guy walks up to me and says, do you believe the Bible? Yeah, actually. And it started, for the rest of my time working there, daily conversation with that guy about who Jesus was, what the Bible said. He actually had Jehovah's Witnesses that were coming to his house. So then we got to talk through what they believe versus what Christians believe and how that differs, what, what Jesus, actually the Bible says about Jesus versus what they say about Jesus. I ended up buying a Bible for him and his girlfriend who were living together and just sharing as much as I could until God brought up another job position that I ended up going to. Now, again, I'm not saying that this makes me wonderful. God kind of dropped that one in my lap, right? Like, that was kind of a given. I would hope every single one of us, if somebody came up and said, do you believe the Bible? I would say, yeah, let me share with you, right? But I'm saying there's other opportunities throughout our days that aren't maybe that easy that we need to be on the lookout for. So next time your coworker brings up a spiritual or religious conversation, Will you be committed to sharing the truth of how somebody really can be saved? Or when you have a child or a spouse or a friend that wrongs you, are you going to be quick to be willing to forgive them and then share with them why it is you're able to forgive them because you first have been forgiven? Or even if you're at the store and it's someone you don't know, but you see that it seems like they're really struggling that day, or maybe just it seems like their life is a depressing one that of just their attitude about things. Do you have any hope to offer them? Has the gospel saved you? And if it has, has it changed your values and the, what it is you commit yourself to? Because the truth is we should be committed to proclaim the message of Christ in the midst of a world that really doesn't want him. But we also must remember that the last reality I want us to see today in this final portion of Acts is people are divided on how they're going to respond to that gospel. So it takes a radical commitment from someone to share a message knowing that there's potential hostility on the other end of those who hear the message. That's why it's clear that only those who are truly saved by Christ are going to be radically committed to it. You're not going to be committed to something that hasn't changed your own life. But we have to remember that there's always going to be one of two responses. Look at Paul's life, right? Up until this point, even in Paul's life, it's been clear that it's not an abnormal experience for someone to reject Jesus. 
It was pretty normal in Paul's experience. And we see it again in this section, right? There's a plot to kill him. Paul gives that wonderful thing to Agrippa, we just said, the, the whole message of the gospel. He lays it out before Agrippa, and what's Agrippa respond with? He says, do you really expect me to become a Christian right now? Paul shows up in Rome, and some of them don't believe him. Right from the get-go at the beginning of our portion from today, when he's speaking to the crowd of people in Jerusalem, he shares with them that salvation has now gone to the Gentiles, which we've seen so far already in Acts. But listen to how they respond. As soon as he shares with them that the salvation has now reached the Gentiles, Acts twenty-two twenty-two says, Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So clearly, one response to the gospel is rejection or even violent hostility. But that's not the only option, right? We see the other option also, and the other response show up in Paul's ministry, that others respond with a much more faithful posture. Some of the Romans do believe. Felix and his wife continue to ask Paul about faith in Christ. And we see at the end of the whole book of Acts, right? Paul welcomed all who came, and he preached without hindrance. And the same case has been seen throughout the entire study of Acts we've gone through. Right? There's cities that that the apostles go into, that they share the gospel, but they try to stone them, or even they're successful in killing someone. We saw Stephen's life taken because he shared the gospel. But then we have other cities that rejoice with hearing the gospel. They receive the Holy Spirit, and they're, they're left worshiping the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you should expect to see both types of responses to the gospel. We often can become so overwhelmed by the negative response, by the fear of rejection, that we only focus on that response. Let me read for you what Paul says about that response of rejection. Acts 28, starting in verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Plain and simple. Paul says, some of you won't understand. Some are going to be blind. Some people are going to have dull hearts that are just going to automatically reject the gospel. But we have to understand as we share the gospel, that we have to have the mentality Paul did. Paul did not feel responsible for their rejection. 
Paul only felt responsible that his, his mentality of to be faithful to the Lord was to be faithful to proclaim the gospel. Now, it should be done in a winsome way, right? It was meant to be done with gentleness without compromising the truth, that there is a loving way to present the gospel, but to present the whole truth of the gospel so that nothing's left out so anybody can truly respond to it. But brothers and sisters, remember that the, the rejection of someone else to the gospel and maybe even their rejection of you does not indicate failure on your part. But I fear that sometimes that fear of rejection overwhelms us. Think of, think of people who have idolatry problems in our world. Let's take one specifically. Let's think of someone who maybe struggles with being addicted to drugs. What's one thing, hopefully, you do not want to do in that person's situation? Give them cash? would be my thought, right? Because that's kind of the, what they use, right, in order to get their hands on what there is already their idol. It would enable the problem to give them the means to get to the problem again. But I feel like sometimes we see other people back away from the illustration of drugs now, just in general. We see people having idols in their lives, people who don't trust in Jesus having idols in their lives. And we act like, hey, you got a good life. I'm glad things are going well for you. Or maybe we even participate in whatever activity they are idolizing. Right? Maybe they idolize money, or maybe they idolize sports, or maybe they idolize ac- academics. And not seeing any of those things in and of themselves are bad things, but when you don't believe in Jesus, that becomes your value system. And when we come to someone and we see them having that as their value system, and that's their idol, and we say, you have a great life. Let's go watch sports together and just talk about sports. And you withhold the entire time the only thing that could free them from that idol. You've chosen something there. You've made one of those decisions of what is it that you're really committed to. The truth is, you have a pretty good idea of everybody surrounding you in life, of who's saved and who's not. Some of them might be you're kind of on the fence about, but you probably have a pretty good idea of who trusts in Jesus and who doesn't. When you choose to hold Jesus back from someone who doesn't believe because your friendship with them is more important, you've chosen their approval as your value system rather than God's approval to be faithful to the gospel. Or when you choose... When the Spirit tugs on your heart and you're at the store and you see somebody struggling and you may not know them, but you feel the Spirit tugging you to try to give them some sense of hope and you choose to remain quiet, you've chosen your own reputation over God's glory. Or when your child sins or somebody else sins against you and you decide to merely address the behavior or to yell, or to get angry, or whatever it is, but you never bring that relationship back to the reconciliation of the gospel, you've chosen convenience 
You've chosen to say, I, I just don't have time to have that conversation right now. I just, I just don't want to have to deal with all of that stuff right now. I just want to control this behavior. I just want things to be better and just be done with it. You've chosen convenience over, if it's your child, what your child needs the most. And here's the greatest truth. All of that's focused on the negative response. You never know when the positive response is going to show up. You never know what God is doing in a person's life. Your commitment to share Jesus with that person could be the moment that they believe. Or it could be you nurturing a seed that somebody else has planted in years past and one day is going to be harvested, but only if you are faithful to nurture it by sharing in that moment. Or maybe you're the one planting the seed that one day somebody else is going to see the harvest for. There's always going to be two responses to the gospel. Expect them. And don't let the negative one deter you from being faithful and committed to what God has called you to be. Instead, remain radically committed to live and speak the gospel of Jesus, believing that those who give themselves to him who have faith in him, who trust in him, who have hope in his life, death, and resurrection, are reconciled to God. And not only that, in in that relationship with God, we are freed up to live the way God originally created us to live. Realize that only those saved by Christ can trust God's road over their own. For some people, this morning, online, in here, that may mean, trusting God's road this morning may mean that for the first time, you entrust yourself over to Jesus. It may be the first time you're hearing about Jesus, or it may be that you've been faking this whole Christian thing up until this point. You've just been going through the motions to keep somebody happy, but you've never really committed yourself to it. You've never had your heart's value systems actually changed by trusting in Christ. So I invite you to take the time to respond with that, to talk to myself or to one of our deacons about what it means to trust in Jesus and walk with him. For others, for those of us who have trusted in Christ... It means remembering that every day you have a choice to make, or rather choices to make. You can either choose minute by minute throughout your day that I'm going to trust God's road or my own. So choose to live like Jesus, even in the midst of a world that may hate you for doing so. Let's pray. Father, we know the truth that you have a plan that we don't always see. We know that's true, and we know your plan is always better than ours. But sometimes we we get so caught up in 
our internal struggle of what our hearts desire and prefer, that we choose our own, our own path, our own desires, rather than what it is that you want us to do. Father, I ask that you would convict us this morning and just every day of our lives when we decide to choose our own road rather than your road. Help us to not just say with our mouths that we believe that your road is better, exceedingly superior, but help us to actually practice that. That we would have lives that are committed to the gospel that has saved us. That we may live lives in the midst of a world that is feeling hostile towards Jesus, that we may display Jesus to that world. So we ask for your help, Father, to give us awareness of those decisions we make each and every day, to help us to choose the right thing, to choose the the godly path, your path, rather than our own. That we would commit ourselves to the gospel and that we would not be fearful of what the response might be for it. May we simply want to be faithful to be witnesses of Jesus, just like we've seen throughout this entire book of the early church. May we have the same commitment to the gospel. And may we see the fruit that they saw. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's persecution and sometimes it's revival. May we see that. May we see people come to know you as a result of us being willing to be faithful with the message of Jesus. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two, 571, please. You'll need your hymnal, 571.